out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is the turn of the singer-songwriter, performer, the one and only John Otway, who is still busily touring and he's going to be touring the country autumn 2022 and coming to Norwich very soon. But uh, that's probably going to be been and gone by the time you've heard this. But anyway, this is... um, You can go to his website and find out much more information, but uh, he became very famous in the 70s when he teamed up with Wild Willie Barrett and did a particular song called Really Free, and um, he's still performing occasionally with Mr Barrett, so um, when they can get their stuff together. But anyway, look, this is the interview, and after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was... Well, basically, he'd done 5,000 shows, so um, go Mr. Otway. And um, the title of of this particular tour, or a newspaper said it's quantity, not quality. And this is uh, John taking up that conversation and that headline. John, um, it's over to you. No, no, that was the... um, Last year, I did my 5,000th gig at the Shepherd's Bush Empire. Right. And um, I I had a a newspaper in which I printed all all 5,000 shows that I'd done. My God, that must have felt amazing. um, I know, no, it was amazing. I mean, there was actually, there's not that many people have managed to do 5,000 gigs in their career. No. And there's even few that could list them all. So it was great to have a newspaper, not very exciting newspaper to read, but a bit more like a nice spy book, really. Um, So the fans could tick off which of the 5,000 gigs they've been to. Anyway, the headline on that newspaper was um, 5,000 gigs. It's quantity not quality <laughs> <laughs> well there no, you go that's most of the uh, n- um next year I'll be, I'll, I'll, it's the start of the tour with, with willie um and uh, that's 50 years of way and barrett blimey that must be quite amazing so just briefly because this is one of the things we love when we get to a certain age is archiving are you one of the great archivists who keeps kind of memorabilia and a list of every gig you've ever done which I think you must say yes to that actually. oh yes yes yeah. I'm completely up, up my own bottom really you know <laughs> and it and it has been handy because when it came down to uh making the movie um I basically had all the archive I basically had collect, collected all the archive footage so I've, I've always felt everything I do is really important <laughs> yes absolutely it's interesting because in this area we used to have an artist called Bruce Lacey, who I interviewed a few times, he used to do these kind of crazy performance art things in the 70s, in the 60s and into the 70s and 80s. And um, he was a fantastic archivist as well. He would, um, archivist, he would, uh, yes, he's had drawers of all his posters, lots of films of all his shows. Um, So it's definitely one of those things. Was that something that was with you from childhood, actually, the ability to store stuff and to um, put it in shoe boxes? What is it's interesting, and I, and I can't work this out. I knew what I wanted to do and what I was going to be from the age of nine. So, um, and I don't know, it probably wasn't sensible because I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a great deal of talent, um, as my mum kept pointing out. Yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, but I did know what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I, I did feel that, you know, from the age of nine, stardom was just around the corner. Yeah, well, that, that's it's good, and uh, yeah, it's good parenting there. Was it a bit like the Andy Warhol thing that you started sort of putting everything in shoeboxes and just storing stuff, thinking one day I'm going to be so famous, this is going to be incredible, kind of interest to somebody who's going to discover my body of work and make me a saint? Yes, um, I, I did, um, but I, I found out it was largely that me that went back to the body of work because I saw. I've written two sort of like amusing autobiographies and then there was the movie and I just, um, I can write a lot about Otway and talk a lot about Otway. (laughs) (laughs) So so a couple of months ago, two months ago, September 2022, you received an honorary PhD presented by... Oxford Brooks University was this something that was quite out of um, out of you know unexpected? Okay, yeah, completely. I, I absolutely completely out of completely out of the blue. What what was I, their I, kind of? Did they come and meet and did they say, "Look, Mister Otway, we we need to we need to give you something very important, and you need to become I, a doctor of music." Yes, basically, I had um, um, 
basically my road who is based in based in Oxford knew that there was sort of like some you know very uh, some good Otway fans in the um, in, in the university. Um, and Oxford was always very special to me. It's really where I I started um, started my career. I always used to say the Beatles had the Star Club in Hamburg, and I had the Oranges and Lemons in Oxford. Yes, and we we played there like fifty times in one year, right at the beginning um, of the of the Otway Barrett thing. And we went in that year from playing to sort of twenty people in the pub to um, you know thousands of people who are doing top of the pops and having a hit record. Um, happened that turnaround happened very quickly. It did, didn't it? It was it was quite something. So just on your at that point of your, you know, hitting nine, what were your parents at all enco- encouraging or kind of musical? No, no, completely opposite. No, 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 completely the opposite. I mean, my mum really thought it was an absolutely silly, silly career to take. And um, you know, I did have a problem when I started, did have a you know problem with my intonation. Right. And uh, she, she wouldn't let me have a guitar until you know I was too big for not to let me have one. Yes. Um, so the first instrument I learned to play was a violin because um, she didn't mind me learning orchestral music. It just it's that horrid pop music that she didn't want me to get involved with. Yeah. So when you got to the age of 10, 12, that kind of period, the Beatles had just started. Was it one of those musical moments in life that just changed everything? Because we because because, you know, I'm slightly younger, not a lot, really, I suppose. But um, I was born 64. So my musical moment in life was the the glam world of Sweet and Slade and T-Rex and Gary Glitter. But luckily, David Bowie was my first single and first love with Space Oddity. What was your kind of musical kind of awakening that changed everything? I'm. I mean, I, I'm. I think I'm quite lucky because I can remember pop music before the Beatles, and you know, this. You know, you have to be this age to remember that. And that was quite fascinating. I mean, it was all basic. Um, there was Cliff Richards, Adam Faith, sort mm-hmm. of those type of the singers, and the interesting stuff was basically imported from imported from America. Things like you know Ray Ray Charles and Roy Orbison. Um, and then the Beatles came along, and the Beatles did change everything. I mean that. You know, the, the, I mean, there's no other way around it. I mean, and they made being British cool and they made British music cool. Yes. Did you get caught up into the the kind of by the, the summer of love, 1963, we had the 14-hour Technicolor Dream in Ali Pali and obviously in San Francisco in January, they'd had the gathering of the tribes. So you were there sort of not exactly in those two places, but you would have been sensing this change of the black and white I mean, I know it wasn't really in black and white in reality, but we look at those old films of the Beatles and the Stones and they were black and white. And then the Technicolor 67, Summer of Love, everyone's tripping out and we're loved up. What was that? Did you kind of, where were you living at that stage? And did you also get slightly loved up and started hugging trees? Um, Not so much loved up, but um, I can remember that there was, within the school, you know, um, as you hit the teenage years, there was um, an underground music club called Friars in Aylesbury. And there was The Social, which was basically playing dance music and soul. Yes. And, um, you know, the people went to dance to. And there was um, there was the, sort of like the underground club, which had, you know, you know, all the bands like sort of Free, Mock the Hoop or um, Genesis, all that lot. And I got very, very heavily into uh, listening to, you know, what became progressive, progressive rock. Right, you were there right at the beginning of, of the prog rock period, and um, yes. I think there was a fir- the, one of the first bands was well, a member. He was on keyboards from Scotland called Is It Clouds or One Two Three, which were quite big at that time. And um, yes, I did an interview with him, and he, he sort of talked about his kind of musical life that finished on stage when he decided to smash his keyboard up and never touch it again because he got <laughs> so dis- disillusioned with the music industry it just kind of destroyed him but um funny enough David Bowie sort of started talking about this character in the 90s and saying that he was an important part of his life which was um an obscure fact but prog rock was definitely one of those things you you took to quite early yes yeah um yes I saw you know the, um but Bob Dylan and Van Morrison, I, were, I mean, Bob, Bob Dylan was always sort of like, like, like the first serious hero, just somebody that you, you know, becoming a wordsmith, you know, in, in terms of writing lyrics. Did you embrace people like the Incredible String Band and, and the, the Pentangle and people like that? Or was that just too... I, I, I quite like them. I, thought, I tended to find the Incredible String Band a bit twee, I must, right. have, uh, must admit. Um, a Pentangle. Um, 
a bit a bit bit too flowery. Too um, flowery, yes. yes. Mot, Mot the Hoople, I mean, in terms of that, Mot the Hoople were, um, were uh, brilliant. So when, when we sort of get to the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, I know decades don't always line up perfectly in that way, but but sort of you got to 18 and suddenly, you know, the 60s finish and then there's the death of Hendrix, Joplin, Morrison, you know, uh, Brian Jones that died the year before. You know, there have been Altamont, the Charles, you know, Manson murders in, in on the West Coast. Did you feel like you're just about to jump out and say, this is it, I'm going to be, I've, I've I've sort of entered this world and it's, oh dear, the party's gone slightly poor at this moment, or it's it's turned, it's turned into a bit of a sham? No, 18 was, and 18 for me was the first time I cracked an audience. I mean, you know, seriously did my first, sort of first, first ever gig and there was nothing like that. I mean, I don't quite well... Um, I'd done quite well with my O-levels and I was doing pure maths, applied maths, statistics and physics for A-level. But then in the lower sixth, I did my first gig at the um, at the school and at one lunchtime, I went down an absolute storm. Right. Uh, and the effect of that was failing all four A-levels. Because I mean, I, just, <laughs> I mean, I just knew that, that, that you know, I just, my I knew what I wanted to do. I mean, my idea at that time was to, at least pass a, a couple of A-levels, go to university, and the way to get into the music industry was by, at that time, being a social secretary, because that's where you, you got to book the bands, and that was our way into the music industry. Yes. But, that, but I had to find another way. <laughs> it's done so badly academically at that point. So you, the lower six, and you decided that was it. You threw your books in the river and and went off as a. I didn't throw them in the river. I just didn't do any. I just didn't do any revision. And um, you know, the whole point there from that point onwards was getting gigs and sort of like getting in front of an audience and writing songs. And um, you know, that's when I first um, met up met up with uh, Willie Barrett and. And was that was that one of those moments? A bit like you know Paul McCartney, John Lennon. You know, Mick, you know Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, Morrissey, and Johnny Marr. Did you was it was it this kind of? Did you have that kind of the planets kind of lined up, and there was like moment, and you went right, this is it. We've got magic between us. <laughs> this is ab- this is absolutely true. I, I, on that year, um, the, that that year was amazing when I was eighteen. Um, but they had um, the Red Cross Bazaar in Aylesbury, and they had um, a fortune teller. This is absolutely true. And she looked in a crystal ball, and it was brilliant because she told me I was sitting there and. She told me that I was going to be a pop star and that I'd have lots of success with a blonde-haired musician. And the only blonde, I mean, Willie was the blonde-haired musician in Aylesbury. And so it, I did bring him up and say, Willie, this is destiny. We have to do it. <laughs> That's such a cosmic moment, isn't it? This this yeah. fortune teller. My God, she's she was good, wasn't she? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Best 10 bob I spent ever. Um, but the, the thing with... Willie, I mean, Willie had ambitions to be a musician and I was basically a joke, you know, a joke on stage. People, you know, people laughed at me and, you know, I mean, yes, I used to pull focus, but um, for a musician, it was for all the wrong reasons. Yes. Uh, so, but every time me and Willie got together, we sort of got a bit bit rewarded. But as soon as we got rewarded, we're both basically off trying to do, to do it on our own, you know. Right. So it was a strange love-hate relationship or you love. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be sort of like uh, first gig we got together. I went on stage first, did a couple of numbers, but I cleared the audience. Willie went on, the audience came back, and I wasn't allowed back on stage again. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first Stockway Barrett gig. But yes. I managed to persuade him to come into a studio and uh, we recorded a couple of tracks, and I actually pressed off an independent single, which was at that time really quite a rare thing to do. Um, and John Peel started playing it, and then Pete Townsend offered to produce a version. So although me and Willie had split up, we actually, you know, with the, you know, the opportunity to work with Pete, you know, Pete Townsend, we decided we better sort of um, get back together again. And um, yes, I did. I remember sort of hearing, you know, I think it was when the police had sort of got back together again after quite a period of time. I think that the kind of the offer on the table was too good to turn down, but everyone was enjoying it apart from two of the three members. And that was Sting and the, and the um, drummer, uh, Stuart Copeland. And, and he was saying that Copeland was saying that they needed band therapy. They really should have had band therapy a lot longer. Do you ever think that you and Willie could have kept it going a bit easier at times if you had band therapy? Um, 
No, I mean, I, I, and now I, I mean, we were actually, we, we were really very nice. I mean, we were very nice to each other. I mean, either of us. I mean, well, he was horrendous, but I think and so was I. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but as I say, we kept getting getting rewarded with, you know, by getting back together again, you know, Pete Townsend worked with us and then we split up. Then we uh, ended up doing obviously testing and having a hit record and um, then splitting up again after that. Um, because I think we both regarded each other as a sort of um, a stepping stone to where we wanted to go, not where we wanted to go. And it's, only now, it's only really in the, now in the last 10 years when you sort of realised, you know, that, that really is your career, do you know what I mean? And that you can actually just enjoy the work you did together. Because, I mean, that first album was, um, I really like it. I mean, I do think it's probably the best piece of work that either me or Woody have done. Yes, and it came out. This was in '77. The album came out, didn't it? Sort of, yeah. sort of the year of punk rock. Did you? How did you find the '70s? Because you mentioned prog rock, and there was had been glam, and then there had been kind of the world of heavy metal, and then there was the the West Coast sensitive singer songwriters like Joni, Joni Mitchell and Carol King, and then you had the Eagles, and then you know you two were sort of hanging around as well in that mix. There was no, there was no obvious place for you to sit, was there really? And no, there was, um, there wasn't until basically that punk thing started to happen. We started basically a little earlier than that. It started off with pub rock, and the whole of the, the um, you know the music um, industry and basically all the music press started looking away from the B Stadium acts and um, looking at what was happening in the uh, on the pub rock circuit. Where people like Eddie and the Hot was Doctor Feelgood, and a lot of that, a lot of those acts have started having success. Yes, and that was where me and Willie were playing, and we suddenly found ourselves getting quite a lot of attention, even though we were playing, you know, some more venues like the Orington Lemons in Oxford. Yeah, and also what I noticed about those days, mostly I'm I'm more of an '80s kid, but there were gatekeepers. We had, you know, there was the the music press. There was three weekly music papers with huge circulation, and then we had the John Peel show. And every city and town in the UK, you know, had at least one or two like little alternative venue or indie nights, didn't they? Sort of most on a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, so people could just get in that transit van and whiz round. And also in your period. And I suppose it was in the sort of 80s. There was things like the old grey whistle test, which had a huge kind of impact, didn't it? So an appearance on that and Top of the Pops, obviously, was, again, too yeah. important. But, to I mean, the whistle test for me, I mean, there was life before the whistle. We did the whistle test and life afterwards. They're quite different animals, really. Um, yes. And it was literally overnight start stardom. I mean, I did that platform on, um, on the whistle test. And we were playing sort of like, um, you know, 50, 60 people a night before that. And then the very next gig after that went up, went on air, there was hundreds and hundreds of people. And yes. really free, which was the single Polydor had out, started go, going up in the charts. And, you know, that sort of last, you know, last couple of months of, um, of 1977, completely mad and probably the most exciting bit of my life. Yes, I would imagine. I mean, Polydor, had, did, had they signed you before that album or was it the kind of influence of Pete Townsend that sort of... Um, got you that particular sort of deal? No, what happened was we, um, I managed, because of the Pete Townsend connection, um, I, and a few years had gone past, but I managed to get tracked to put out um, put out a single. Um, is, this Misty, is this Misty Mountain? Uh, Misty Mountain was the first one, but the, the uh, track put out, uh, uh, at that point, track put out uh, a song called Louise on a Horse. Right. Just by Pete Townsend. And then they gave us some money to go and re record a single, but we used the money to record an album, and they were furious and just <laughs> kicked us off the um, kicked us off the label. So we produced an album called the label Extract. Right, got gotcha. you. But then, then that was that that was the start of also the indie labels as well. Stiff had just started up then, and the fact that this was another indie label caught the attention of the music press, and basically Polydor. Um, Polydor spotted that trend and um, bought the rights to that, um, bought the rights to that album and put, uh, uh, and put it out. Yes, absolutely. But then, sort of, it's always tricky, isn't it? The second album, it's kind of the big cliche in life. How did, how did you know, not only the stardom after your moment on the old grey whistle test and appearances elsewhere, but then sort of sitting down with Willie and thinking, right, we've got to follow that up with another 
another classic. What was oh, the no, pre- it, no, it, it went obviously it went tits up after the after after the hit because I I'd recorded this uh, orchestral ballad called Geneva um, as a solo ballad to try and impress this girl and Polydor put it out as the sort of follow up single to um, Really Free. So the Otway Barrett single was followed up by a solo Otway solo Otway Barrett. There wasn't a solo Otway. Um, you know, a ballad thing that um, wasn't at all punk rock, which um, basically didn't get, get anywhere. And um, so me and Willie split up on the um, the day that the Otway Barrett album, uh, Deeper Meaningless, that he'd been working on came out. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost kind of classic, isn't it? That's the kind of ma- manage. Was Willie just really upset by the whole moment he must have been must not he? oh we didn't we didn't treat it um we didn't treat each other very well that was uh you know um but you know i mean the, the huge mistake that we met i mean the biggest mistake we made was putting um beware of the flowers on the b-side of really free if we'd have kept them um set but then that would have been the obvious the obvious follow-up to really free and we'd have had a uh, two hits and maybe stuck together a bit longer Yes, God, two albums, and that was the end. Because one thing I did not ha- have noticed is that if an artist has a certain amount, or a band has a certain amount of success in one decade, they often flounder in a th- in the in the next one. And I noticed quite a lot of people from the seventies, their eighties work isn't great. They they kind of seem a little bit lost, and they start getting. They try to follow the trend of the time, you know, they get the producer or that sound that, you know, the the Trevor Horn production sound of the 80s or something very shiny. And they're like, I don't know, I'm thinking of people like David Bowie and um, there's Robert Plant and Rod Stewart. You know, their 80s work is a bit, you know, a bit shiny, but not that fantastic. And they seem they even admit themselves that, you know, they were quite lost sometimes. So how did you find kind of coming into the next decade without Willie on your side? Um. I mean, the, the stuff straight after the stuff straight after the um, after that, that that sort of second album, Neil Innes produced the first solo album. Um, it was absolutely lovely, absolutely lovely chap. Um, but I, but basically, I didn't give him a great material to work with. Right. Um, it was at that time the idea that you should really keep pushing stuff out very very quickly, and. Um, yeah, in hindsight, I should have just basically waited until I had a body body of material that was consistently good. Yes, that was tricky, which wasn't it? Which is, what, which is basically uh, after that um, first solo album. It's something I'd largely done. I basically worked on the principle: look, nobody's dying for New Otway Records, so at least, at least get um, you know the you know the stuff consistently good before you record, record it. Yes. Because what's Way Way and Bar? This is your is the 1980 album by Otway and Barrett, isn't it? And your last yeah. on Polydor, and and is this the sec- this is the next time you get together, and then you split after this as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we basically got back together again because we were both broke, weren't we? <laughs> 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 and uh, so, so it's and, uh, yeah, and it worked last time. So yes, yeah, so we got we got together, and um, yeah, really produced the. Uh, the Way and Bar album. Well, we did have a bit of success off that because we uh, had a song called DK5080, which got to 45 in the charts. Yes. And so that kept this sort of clear going. I mean, the other thing with me, I mean, I've always been, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed performing live and always kept managed to keep a live audience, you know. And, I, you know, to this day, do you know what I mean? It's, um, they've been, you know, a good live audience and, um, yeah, which is why we, you know, as I mentioned, we've just done 5,000 gigs, you know, it's... Uh, it's amazing. Because this but this tour that you were doing in the early 80s, this is your tent tour, isn't it? This is... Yeah. And this is where you go around the country during the summer, which is a good month to go around in a tent. Um, so whose idea was that? Because I know Ronnie Lane had done something slightly sort of, I'm not sure, similar in the 70s, hadn't he? Well, I was always, um, you know, uh, I was always into hyping the charts and it was a bit like, how could you hype the charts and because we had a good live following it had occurred to me that um a, a, a single was cost le- le- less money than a gig ticket so if you could do a tour around all the towns had chart return shops in right and you, only get, and you could only get into the gig if you'd have got a copy of the single you would actually sell it if you could do the tour quick enough 
you could sell enough singles to get into the bottom end of the chart. Yes. That's the reason we did it. But then you couldn't afford the hotels. So that's why we um that's why we had a camper, you know, a camper van, a couple of tents and and a transit to do the tour. I know that was very impressive, wasn't it? That was incredible. Because during the 80s, I mean, things do change quite radically. You know, there was the, you know, where Thatcher came in in, 70, in 79, then we had the miner strike, the Greenham Common, um, the Falkland War, then there was Red Wedge. So what was the rest of the 80s? Because were you then back on us being a solo artist again? Work, And did you work with Vivian Stanshaw, the great Vivian? Uh, no, but I think he had that, um, he had that venue defected, didn't he, I believe, and uh, played there a few times. Right. Um, but did but you in, did you appear with Vivian on on his showboat, the old profanity showboat in Bristol? Was this a particular gig that you you performed with each other, or was that? I didn't actually on stage there, but we play, uh, definitely played the show. Right, and then you appeared with the young ones, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. I I, I tried to. I, I I had to go. I had to go at acting to with some degree of success, and um, yeah, and. Uh, um, yeah. It's got to be done, hasn't it? Did you get an equity card? Yes, I got an equity card right at the beginning because basically, as a singer, you can you don't you can sort of say no, I'm an act, I'm you know a performer rather than a musician. Yes, uh, so I could get uh, so I managed to get an equity card and did a lot of television adverts and a couple of television you know very small bits in television series and things like that. Kept the wall from the door a bit. You got to, you got to do the hustle, haven't you? Because I know you did a film ten years ago, but in 1990 you did your first book, didn't you? Or the your autobiography called yeah. Baby. That's really me. Um, what was that like? Because it was it was still quite early on in your career. In retrospect, I mean, obviously, probably 20 years seemed like a long time from the 70s. But I mean, was that an interesting experience writing writing your memoirs at this stage? Yes, and I mean the whole. Um... I mean, the point of the book was I'd reached this nadir when absolutely everything had got, gone wrong. I mean, I, I remember playing to about sort of four people in a four people in a um, at a gig, and everything had just gone completely. Uh, uh, I, I bought this house to uh, uh, convert it into two flats, and um, then found out that we weren't allowed to do that. And um, and uh, my, my wife legged it back to Canada, and basically, I, everything had just gone wrong. And somebody suggested um, that the, there was room for books about uh, music-related books. So I just had to go at writing uh, just an, an amusing uh, autobiography with the idea being, unlike all the other books where the, basically the management and the record companies are the bad guys, I thought, no, we have, you know, we'll have, I wrote it in the third person and it was basically them really trying very, very hard to do something sensible with this completely uh, personal, completely on, on, you know, a thing of self-destruction. And I, I found that that comedy was quite, really quite easy to, to write and realise that, you know, banana skins are far more entertaining to read about than um, people's success. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, I know people like Martin Newell sort of had to sort of occasionally go and... Um, become a gardener, decorator, all those classic kind of part-time jobs. Did you have to occasionally sort of put the guitar down and perform in and, and sort of do another side hustle to keep things ticking along? No, no, I was, no, I was determined. I know when I gave, gave my, when I handed my notes in um, for, for my last job, I did, um, I, I vowed that I would never ever do another sensible day's work. So although I did the things like the acting, I got regarded the acting as being a bit of the same thing. So I never did a note. Yes, well, no, it's it's oh, quite good. You know, you know, no, I am a rock star. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that's <laughs> that's yeah. what I do. That's what I do. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm not going to sort of like a, So no, I've never supplemented it with anything else. That's amazing. That is just so cool. And did you find when you came, you know, like I said, it was 2012, the, the, the film came out. And that was titled, you know, Rock and Roll's Greatest Failure, Otway the Movie. Was Did you find yourself, you know, and I've seen this with a few bands and artists, that when they've had that kind of success or certain moment in life, and then sometimes it's hard to follow it up, there's a period of time that passes and then suddenly their fans kind of want to rediscover them and sort of kind of appreciate them more. I think... With a lot of artists, they realise their fans have to get on with their own life and they've got their own commitments. And then 
you know, and people don't quite appreciate the musician and the band quite, you know, sometimes, you know, we sort of forget them and then suddenly think, no, we we love those people. We want to sort of come and celebrate them again. Did you find that with the passing of time, you became much more popular? Um, no, I think we've always, uh, always actually, actually I've, I've seriously looked after, really looked after my fan base because that's the only way that I can make a living. And so they've liked, you know, I mean, obviously it's um, gone up and down a bit, but we've largely kept hold of, um, kept hold of a lot of them from, you know. Right. And I've always sort of like included them, you know, in, um, I've always felt that the entertainment doesn't, you know, start when I go on stage and stops when I come off. It, you know, we've always done things like, um, you know, we did the, had a campaign to do the hit, I had a campaign to fill the Royal Albert Hall, you know, um, gone on these um, adventures, you know, and, and it, a lot of it's been kept keeping the career going has been from crowdfunding before that name was invented, really. Right. You had you had patrons to keep the going. What was the longest period of time that you went without working and seeing Willie at this stage? You know, because you'd done some work, I suppose, from the 80s. And yeah, I know you. I, I think we went through, I, I think we went through for nearly 10, I think we went for nearly a sort of 10 year, 10 year spot when, um, where we didn't really. Um, didn't really work, didn't, hadn't done any gigs. Yes. So two, was 2009, was that quite a significant moment that you got back together with Willie? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, there, there, I think, yes, there was there was that point when, um, there, was, there was a point when we just, enjoyed, we just basically said, enjoyed getting up on stage and, you know, having a go at each other on stage, you, you know, you know, and, uh, and sort of money monetizing that <laughs> monetizing our grievances, which uh, which is basically all we do. <laughs> so, what was the process? Did did who got in touch with who at this stage? Because because it seems like from two thousand and nine to now, you've kept a certain relationship going, but there'd definitely uh, been a break before. Uh, 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 a couple of things. I, I think. Um, Willie was offered. Uh, Willie was offered the uh, main stage at um, Cropfordy um, if um, if he did it as a duo, and I think he quite fan- I think he quite fancied that. Right. I mean, and you know, a lot of the Cropfordy people, I think, were Willie. You know, Willie's mates and stuff like that. So I think, and it's and it's a nice big you know it's a nice big stage to do. Yes. You know, a you know, nice thing about Cropfordy, it's one of those festivals that there is one main stage. It's not everybody split split up watching lots of different things. So I think, as I remember it, I think it was possibly that that Willie sort of suggested. You know, said, "Do you fancy, um, uh, yeah, do you, do you fancy doing it?" You know, and did and did and did you sort of go right? Okay, that's interesting. Let me think about that, and then get back the next day and say, "Right, we better go and meet up and have a little chat because." There's still things we said ten years ago and else t- other parts that we just need to sort of smooth out a bit. What's that relationship like? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, it was funny. I mean, it, um, I mean, if you think about it, in the meantime, I, I I had written I had written the autobiography, which I spelled out <laughs> my sort of side of the piece, but basically because it was a self-effacing auto- autobiography, and basically, um, I. I was, uh, you know, taking this out myself. Um, basically, Willie actually came out of it quite well, you know, because I, you know, I was in front terribly in the in in, in the book. So, um, you know, so I, I, I don't obviously made a lot. I obviously made a lot of Willie's arguments for him, really. Right. <laughs> so you kind of completely own your sort of side that could. You can see why Willie got completely irritated at times, or kind of annoyed with you. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, it was basically that Willie um, is. I mean, he's an absolutely brilliant musician. I and mean, when I started working with him, people said, "Oh, you know, in your career, you'll meet loads, loads of people that can play like that." But I never have. Nobody, right. nobody plays like that. And that really odd mixture of bluegrass, blues, American stuff. You know that. You know. Five finger banjo picking playing that he does, where most people, the ones that can do it really well, do it really quite, de- de- you know, accurately and um, beautiful. Willie just sort of like lays in, just lays into it. Do you know? Uh, do you know what I mean? Like a a punk five, uh, 
punk bluegrass player. Yes. And and the, the same with his violin playing. Um, and he's extraordinarily exciting and ab ab absolutely brilliant. And he really wanted to become, you know, a, you know, a, a, a musician, you know, a famous musician in his own right. And I was basically a clown, you know, to a certain extent, a clown on stage. I mean, I did used to go for the laughs and I did used to sort of like hang upside down from, you know, speaker columns and, you know, dive off things, you know, it's sort of anything to basically uh, uh, pull focus and pull attention. <laughs> you know, really didn't mind it if it was a leg up to sort of like having a hit record, which meant was somewhere, you know, he could um, use that as a, a, a base to sort of go and be famous from. And I certainly didn't mind using Willie's musical, you know, ability to get as, as a launch pad for my career. But we both regarded like, each, you know, each other as a launch pad from where we wanted to go. And I, I think that was the problem. We didn't actually want to be Otway and Barrett. We just wanted to use each other's talent and then go off and, you know, benefit from it. Yes, but, interesting. But, but the thing is, I mean, the stuff we did together were, were, is probably the um, is probably the best stuff either of us ever did. Yeah, but you have got your solo work. You've got a phenomenal discography of solo work, which is quite comprehensive isn't it and there is a you know it's a great album you did sort of 2006 Bunsen burner which I haven't heard that word for ages actually since school times and there's some great songs in there and the great version of Disco Inferno by the Tramps which is you've yeah, taken that was, that, that, was a, so that was a that was a that was a that was a second hit um so that was a top top 10 hit Bunsen burner um Bunsen burner came about because my daughter was at secondary school and when she came home um she uh, she mentioned that talk talked about the months of running, and it suddenly occurred to me that everybody, whatever age they were, from my daughter's age up, was they all had a Bunsen burner story. Yes, <laughs> and so you know, so I just thought that that, that would be an interesting thing to uh, that would be an interesting thing thing to write about. Yes, um, but we you know that all came about because record sales at that time were, were really very low. The only thing that counted for the charts were physical sales. And um, so we realized with our fan base, and what you were allowed to do then is do three, you know, three, three different versions of different B-sides, we could actually chart a we had a, a fan base big enough to chart a record. Right. I mean, and, and it was just that window of opportunity. I mean, you couldn't do it um a year later because they started to in include streaming in the um Yes, in it was a tricky one. But, I mean, but, you know, we managed to get back on top of the pops 25 years after the first time, uh, you know, and for me it was great because it, it did make you, you know, instead of being a one-hit wonder, somebody that had a 25-year chart career. Yes, yeah. absolutely. This is this is very good because you've done a phenomenal amount of solo work with your band, but you haven't, you haven't been in the studio that much again with Willie, have you, or have I got that wrong? No, no, we've done a few bits and pieces with Willie. Um, but uh, 2002, uh, 2016, I went to Montserrat with the band and we went to uh, Sir George Martin's place and recorded the Montserrat album. Yes. Um, but coming up to, we're coming up to 50 years of Otway and Barrett. So I might try and um, try and re record, you know, trying to get together with them and do some, do some more recording. Is it easier just with you and the band without, you know, in the studio doing that side of it and then just with you and Willie mostly it's the kind of the first couple of albums that you you focus on I just wondered if if, no, if, if with Willie look, at the moment like, like, we have done a few places since it's like the, the first two albums yes and just what I just was kind of curious to know if, it, if it's just kind of would be just impossible to sort of write as you know Otway and Barrett and rather than just Otway and your band um I will have a go at writing with Willie. Um, I mean, the way I tend to write, because I, I, I'm basically a, a wordsmith, so I basically, and the reason a lot of the uh, albums are quite eclectic is they have a, a vague idea for a, a melody line and the lyrics, and then you actually work with different musicians and go, go sort of, um, and then they arrange them and actually sort of add add the musical side to it so yes because you do great covers of those kind of early kind of glammy 70s tracks like blockbuster and you also do crazy horses as well so what 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 are the songs that you often sort of 
kind of zoom into thinking right that's that's the one that will be a brilliant cover for for my style um well well, uh, well blockbuster for instance i mean the words are just so stupid i mean <laughs> I, I i mean i like writing lyrics and i you know, and when you've got something like, you better beware, you better take care, you better watch out if you've got long black hair. I mean, now I just, I mean, now I just tell, and I think about Blockbuster is that they just don't get any better as you actually read <laughs> the lyrics. No, no, no. And once you actually spell them out so that people actually start actually listening to the words, they're going, wow, they are, that they are really, really are stupid. <laughs> um, that was the reason for that one. And Crazy Horses, uh, somebody bought me a theremin for my birthday, or a bunch mm. of fans bought me a theremin. And um, the, uh, the obvious thing to do with a theremin was, going, ooh, 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 was Crazy Horses. So um, Yes, this is true. You can't, uh, you had to, it, you channeled the spirit of Donny Osmond there, didn't you? And, the yeah, and I was actually, I was actually quite an Osmond fan. I used to find them, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, quite... Um, and did and during this period, you know, just as as you went through that seventies period and eighties, did your mum think you made it? I can't believe it, John. You are you are the you are the star. You you've done it. Was she did was she very proud of you? When, when oh, you no, 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 no. I couldn't couldn't say I mean, yeah, I think they probably were were, were quite pleased. But I mean, she she was aware that I would eventually have to get a proper job, and. Um, I mean, she got, she basically got to, to 90 and just before she died, I think she sort of suddenly started appreciating that maybe I would never do a day's work. <laughs> <laughs> I think that took her, took her by surprise. Um, yes. And did she have a particular favourite song of yours that she used to say, you know, that one from the album, blah, blah, that was, that's a good one. I like that. No, her her, um, her favourite was a song from the first album called If I Did. Right. That's when you and I can remember. Oh, I like that song. So, <laughs> no. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your 16 year old self back in the uh, late 60s, just that bit of advice, you know, that you've you, you've obviously probably got sort of from. Oh, no, but beware of the flowers on the B side. <laughs> it was the B side, wasn't it? Yes. Well, you could have two hits rather than just one. Or wait, you don't have to wait for 25 years to have another one if you don't make that stupid mistake. Yes. And I wouldn't have whispered it to me. I would have, you would have shouted it to you. And did you manage to navigate that wonderful world that was kind of publishing and ownership of music and license and deals? Did that... Did you sort of manage to navigate that in a way that meant that you didn't feel completely ripped off and you thought, wow. Yes, I was just, just very, very lucky. Um, uh, Dave Clark, had, um, from Dave Clark 5, I don't know if you um, but he'd managed to keep, license his tracks rather than sell them to a record company. And I thought that was quite a nice idea. So when we did the Polydor deal, I just licensed my material to them for a period of um, 10 years rather than... Um, well, you know, rather than give them to you know, do an artist deal and give them to the record company, which meant after 10 years, I got them all back, which has been quite not, I mean, it has been really handy because it means I can just re reissue whatever I like in whatever format. Yes, I heard Dave Clark was the, the only one from the 60s who did well almost because of um, his uh, his business acumen. So, um, yeah, I mean, he bought, I think he bought a lot of um. Uh, you know, video footage as well of all those 60s bands and stuff like that and owned all that, so. Yes. So look, I must admit, looking at your website and seeing your tour, I mean, you are phenomenally, I know you said that, you know, your audience, you know, your fans, your friends, as Frank Sinatra once said, <laughs> but you're you're so up for touring. You know, this is, this is quite relentless, isn't it? It's like the never, you are the Bob Dylan of, of, of the UK, really, aren't you? It's a never-ending tour right into yeah, next I mean, year. Like basically, since 1976, I say, if you think about it, it's uh, 50 gigs, I've done 5,000, uh, 50 years, I've done 5,000 gigs. That's 100 shows a year, every single year. And the only thing that really threw me was the um, the lockdown. It was two years without, really, without doing any gigs. It was horrible. I know, that, that just stumped you. And are you finding, with the, when you look out to your audience and you go, wow, look at those beautiful people, are there kind of original fans, but also second generation kids coming along to see you as well? 
Yeah, so yeah, there's a few, there's a few grandchildren coming. <laughs> there is a few grandchildren coming along. Their grandparents bring them. This <laughs> it's, it's true, and the grandchildren are teenagers. It's terrible. <laughs> That's amazing. That is so cool. Actually, you've got that kind of board because your diary is phenomenal, and it is kind of with you and the band, with yourself, and all with Willie. Who's the organizer with this? I mean, who's the one who keeps all the admin going? Always. But you said you had a maths. You were good at maths at school. Are you just a very logical person who's good at spreadsheet? Um, I, uh, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm re- yes, I'm reasonably, reasonably good, but reasonably organised. I mean, I, I did always understand the practicalities of doing most things or what you actually need to do to do them. Right? When I made the movie, I basically knew what you could you knew what you could shoot on knew what editing software to um worked out with people what you actually needed to do to get it into a projector in a cinema um and all and all that sort of thing so you know yeah I realized that we just sort of like got to that point in you know, um in you know 2012 where you could make a cinema movie basically on um on a thousand pound camera Brilliant. Did you, I mean, with with that incredible career and, and this sort of the lifespan of it, what was the most kind of showbiz rock and roll moment you had or, or and, you know, the most famous person you were hanging out with, you know, either backstage or at the bar? I just was curious, what was the most rock and roll moment in the, in your life? Um, oh, I, I think with that, um, after the hit, I decided I needed a press agent and um I wanted to one of the top press agents. So we've got Rogers and Karen, who are Paul McCartney's press agent. Um, and so I, and I, I bumped into Paul McCartney um, a, a, a little while before because Lin, Linda was a big fan of Really Free. She really liked that as a single. And um, Excellent. So, so, so I met Paul, but I got invited to the, the Buddy Holly um, premiere, which um, there was a party beforehand in... Uh, peppermint lounge and uh paul mccartney was there um and lo- loads of uh, roxy music i mean lo- loads and loads of um big stars which uh, which of course i was one as well at that time. <laughs> um and but the sad thing about that was uh keith moon gave us a lift um from the party to the, the, the cinema in his um in, in, in his limo and that was the, the, that was the night he died so yeah. Wow, because I I remember there was a famous picture of like Paul and Linda, Linda looking really bored and Paul talking to Keith. And that was, um, and, you know, the caption was, this is, you know, Keith Rich, uh, Keith Moon died the next day, you know. So it's like, and he looks quite wired up, but a bit bloaty, actually, doesn't he? he? Was right. No, I mean, I was in, I mean, he, he offered me and me and my girlfriend at the time a lift around to the cinema because we, we were having a laugh. We had a laugh in the limo on the way, the way back. Um, and I just think there was, I, I talked to somebody that had done a, an autobiography on him and um, they were saying, yeah, a lot of people have said the same thing. No, he just, it was an accident and he'd just taken the wrong combination of things. Right. Jeezy, crazy. Because you must, I mean, on that point of that, that, that subject, you must just think you're one of the great rock and roll survivors as so many of your peers are sort of, you know, popping off, so to speak. Mm. Oh, there's quite there's quite a few of us. There's quite a few of us have kept there's quite a few of us have kept going. The ones that keep going, I tend not make the news so much. Um, but for me, it was always from the age of nine, that's what I was going to be a rock star. That's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Um and, 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 have, am, you got, know, and have you got any new material or have you got any new material or an album in, in the pipeline? Um, I do make the joke, but there is some truth in it that away fans can only ha- handle a new Otway album once every 10 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> but as you get older, you know, you don't really want an, a, an album a year. So, and I found when I did the Monsat album, it's 18 months of sort of solid, pretty solid writing to sort of, yes. like, you know, doing albums of the materials. It's quite nice when that stops to have a few years when you think, no, oh, I don't have to do that. So on the merch, in, you know, when you go around touring, what's the thing that goes particularly quickly? What do the fans mostly go for? I just started um, my new T-shirt. So John Otway, I can't believe it's not better. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that, 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 we, we, we done, um, we, we've done loads and loads and loads of those. 
Excellent. Um, and that's the, that... the books, books are very popular. I mean, obviously, CDs and uh, DVDs um, are not, not as, as much as in heyday, but people still do read books. And I noticed that with, with a lot of artists, there's one country in Europe that will really take to them. Is there any particular country that uh, has taken you to their heart, like the Italians or the Spanish or the Germans? No, I've always been very, it always has been a very sort of um, UK thing. I think language, I mean, it's quite... Yes. I mean, I'm a lyricist, so I mean, a lot of it is language-based, and a lot of my introduction to the songs on stage are, lot, are sometimes as long as the song itself. <laughs> which doesn't matter which is great if you speak the language but isn't that great if you don't no this is true this is true well look you're going to be touring you're going to be in Norwich on Wednesday so I hope it yeah, goes really well Norwich Star Centre has always been really really good for us for you know probably the last 30 years or something we've, we've yes. done it regularly and regularly sold it out so I've been very fond of Norwich I'm not surprised and when you sort of get there and then Willie turns up as well. Do you sort of just have a quick chat, go through the numbers, or do you just think we're fine? Let's just we'll we can do this without too much rehearsal. Oh, we never rehearse. No, we sort of know what we're doing. So basically, we just just make sure all the, each instrument is well, each instrument's working all right, and we can hear each other, or not <laughs> depending on what we want to do. Do you prefer when you're the headline? But I know you've got Dr. Feelgood, you'll, you'll be supporting. What are those gigs like? Are they still as enjoyable? Oh, I don't know. I've just done a long tour with Wilco. Are those, they, I mean, it is quite nice uh, doing things like the Wilco tour because, as I was said to several people, if you did a Venn diagram of Otway fans and Wilco fans, there will be quite a large chunk in the middle of people that like to suppose. Yes. Um, and so. Um, it's, it's great. You, I've got sort of um, an hour to, and, and the evening's their responsibility. So I can just go on and, 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 and have fun and then go to the bar and have a, a few beers while somebody else does the main bit of work. Love yeah, it. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you ever so much for this. And I really hope the tour goes well. And, and um, hopefully Norwich will give you a, a fine sort of reception as you wander on stage. And oh. um, so 5,000 gigs. Jeezy crazy. That's amazing. Well, hope the recording actually worked. <laughs> no, God, it did. It's it's all good. I've been looking at it on the top left there. It's like, yes, it's fine. Look, John, thank you ever so much and take no, care. No, no, thanks for doing it. It's great. And uh, I'll put this out. Okay, thanks a lot, John. Take care. Yes, Cheers. Thanks, Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with John Otway talking about his life in music and current tour. He seems to be going on forever. Um, you can find out more information if you go to his uh, website just Go through the search engine and um, go for John Notway Singer. And you will find more information. And also Wild Willie Barrett has a um, website as well if you want to find out more about him, his work, and also his um, other craft, which is wood woodwork, I do believe. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. These have all been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.